I was once asked to give a vocation talk to a class of seniors in high school at an all-boys Catholic high school. And the priest, who I knew, uh, was older, and he, he was wanting to bring in some younger seminarians, I was in the seminary at the time, to try to speak to these young men about the priesthood, because in so many years of teaching, he, he hadn't ever seen anybody really interested uh, in becoming a priest. And he wondered, maybe it's because I'm too old or I'm out of touch and bringing these young guys. And it was me and another seminarian. We sat around in this circle in the classroom. And we gave our talk about what a beautiful life it is to be a priest and why we had chosen to join the seminary and why we were looking forward to being priests. And the guys were polite and listened. And then there was time for Q&A. And no one really asked any questions because nobody was really interested. There were a few here and there, like they were trying to be polite. Well, do you guys get paid or, you know, what is it like? And then I could tell there was the one kid who would ask the question that everyone was thinking, but no one was willing to ask. And he raised his hands and said, I guess my problem is that I can't really imagine not having sex. Like, uh, all guys our age think about in our free time is like food, sleep, and girls. <laughs> so I don't know how we could be priests. And I thought about it for a second, and I just said to him, well, and to all of them, I hope, I think, and I hope that you'll come to a point in your life when you don't look at girls as equivalent to food and sleep, <laughs> but as persons to be loved. <laughs> right now, you may not be capable of that. But the vocation to marriage or to priesthood necessitates the maturity and not seeing the opposite sex as simply an object or a thing I can't live without, some pleasure or some thing that I need to be happy, but rather persons in their own right to be loved and honored and respected. Our readings this week actually were the identical readings to a Mass I said yesterday, my cousin's wedding. I married uh, my cousin and his wife yesterday up north, and um, these were the readings, the first, and the, the first reading and the Gospel reading. The creation of Adam and Eve and Jesus' um, affirmation of that biblical teaching and its prohibition of divorce, that what God has joined together as a one-flesh union of man and wife, two equals but complementary, cannot be divided once God has joined these two persons into one flesh. It simply can't be legally or theologically or spiritually divided anymore. You can only marry one person. It goes back to the very beginning in creation, in the Genesis story, that's so full of rich symbolism that in the beginning, Adam was made, God breathed his spirit into, them, into him, and then said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So he makes all of these animals and plants and all these beautiful things. But even though he's surrounded by all sorts of objects, he's still alone. Because he can't be friends with the birds or the fish or the mountains or the grass. Because they're not persons. They're not subjects. They're objects. This is a kind of harkens to something that G.K. Chesterton said about the mystery of the human person. That whether he evolved or whether God created him out of clay, you can't dispute the fact that man is a freak. That he is way beyond the rest of nature, but he's also way behind. In the sense that 
We are the only animal that paints pictures of other animals, but we're also the only animal that can't sleep in our own skin. The caveman had to kill all sorts of other animals, steal their skin so he could keep warm at night. There's something weird about us. We're like an alien life form from another planet. We came here, and it's like we don't belong here. There's something totally different about us. We're way beyond the rest of everything else, but we're also way behind, and we're vulnerable and scared. And we long for company. We long for someone like us, another person, to share our life. That's why we live in communities and cities and families and clans, because we have to group together. It's like our deepest desire, our deepest instinct. And so God makes a companion for Adam out of himself, out of his own heart. And Adam says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, at last, an equal, someone like me, a person. And it says in the biblical account, not read today, but that they were naked without shame. They looked on each other as a whole person. And they didn't have any shame, no sin between them, no fear, just total vulnerability, total acceptance, and total love. That's the heart of marriage, that companionship, that friendship, that equality. That it's an exchange of persons, an intercommunion of subjects. And so, what is prohibited in that relationship, what is prohibited in the interaction between man and woman is that that one would ever treat the other as an object. It's beneath their dignity to either let themselves be used as an object or to use the other as an object, whether for pleasure or enjoyment or manipulation or anything else. Persons, that is subjects, are never to be used but only loved. And what is love? To want what the other person wants. To have an intercommunion of wills. Just as it is to love God, is to say, Thy will be done, not my will be done. Or as the Virgin Mary said at the Annunciation, Let it be done to me according to your word. To love is to will what the other wills, to will the good of the other, and not to use that person to conform them to my will. I want you to do this or that, and that's why I love you, is because you're convenient. I like you, I can use you. The person is never to be used, only to be loved. And that's the tragedy of the creation story, is that after this beautiful, original innocence, this naked without shame, this perfect friendship and communion between spouses, sin enters in. And then they clothe themselves, they hide themselves, because they know that they can no longer say that, I love you, totally. But they begin to use each other, manipulate each other, harm each other, and there's two main pitfalls in this. And why there is a, such a thing as sexual morality, why the church has something to say about sex and marriage, is because of this principle that the person is never to be used. And why shame is a particularly um, neuralgic problem with sins of sex and sexuality is because it deals with something so personal, so intimate, so vulnerable. And these two pitfalls are sensuality and sentimentality. Sensuality is not love of the person, but rather love of the body. It's fixation on some part or some aspect of the appearance of a person that blinds you to the fact that that person is a person. Things like pornography. Blind, it's, uh, John Paul II, I think, said that it's not that pornography shows too much, it's that it shows too little. 
because you're so fixated on the body part and the lust that it arouses in, in the human appetite for sex, the sexual urge, that you're blind to the fact that that person is a person and has needs and desires and wants and hopes and not just a person to be used, not just an object to be used. And so there's all sorts of disciplines that we have to discipline the sexual urge, which is a, a good thing. It's not bad to have a sexual urge. It's part of being human. But the sexual urge is not like a fire to be quenched with water. Like, as long as I satisfy this urge, then it'll go away. It'll, like, put out the fire. A lot of times, satisfying the sexual urge is more like pouring gasoline on the fire than water on the fire. It inflames this, this tendency to use other people for what pleases us. It's less like a fire and more like a river that has to be directed to its proper end. Because we're persons, even though we have this urge we share with the animals, we can choose how to direct that urge, that vital energy of life and love that's meant to get us out of ourselves and not to turn us into ourselves. Which is why there are you know, customs of modesty, both of men and women, to, to protect the other from using me as an object, being tempted to not see me as a person, but rather a collection of body parts that have dif- differing values or sexual appeal. Why I have custody of the eyes, why I tend to not try to focus or, or control my thoughts, to not fantasize and, and get lost in all sorts of lurid or lustful things. It's to control that urge and direct that river into a loving path that is generous and wills the good of the other rather than tries to use the other. So there's that sensuality that we have to control. We have to channel the desire in a positive direction. But there's also sentimentality, which is a little different. It's not so much fixated on the body or the appearance, but the idea of a man or the idea of a woman, right? Or the, the life that I could have. You know, a lot of times, one person will just sit in the play, as a placeholder in my fantasy about how my life should be. I want to be the perfect couple. And that guy out there, he's just perfect for me. And I can just imagine us and the children that we're going to have. They'll be beautiful babies and we'll go on great vacations and we'll read books by the fire and we'll never have a fight. We're perfect. We're soulmates. Right? And that's what, we're lo- that's what I'm looking for is the guy that will drop everything and come across the country in a one-way plane ticket and sweep me off my feet or whatever. Some idea, the romantic comedy of the perfect guy. And then poor dude who's not the perfect guy has all that pressure (laughs) to live up to and he's just a guy or she's just a girl and they're never going to live up to it and so it ultimately always disappoints always always uh, results in conflict because you're not loving the person in front of you you're loving some idea that that person stands in the place of and so we manage our expectations we focus on the person right in front of us We have realistic perceptions and don't get carried away. We also don't let ourselves be valued by whether or not we're in a romantic relationship. So so often it's like, well, since I don't have the perfect guy or since I'm not in that perfect relationship and I look on Facebook and all my friends seem to be, that must mean there's something wrong with me. That I'm not lovable, I'm not beautiful, I'm not attractive. There's something defective in me because I'm not living that. I can't find that. To not wrap up the value of our lives or the value of us in some extraneous thing, some external thing, some fantasy. Both of these pitfalls could be remedied simply by this personalistic norm. To 
to love other persons and to love ourselves in proper order. Not as objects to be used, but as persons to be loved. There's this interesting thing that follows Jesus' prohibition of, of, against divorce and adultery, where the children come to him. This is a classic scene. I remember the stained glass window of this scene in the church I grew up in. Our pew was always right by it, so I looked up at Jesus and the children my whole childhood while I wasn't listening to the homily. He says, let the children come to me because it's such as these that the kingdom of God belongs to. These innocent ones. These unstained ones. The children don't understand these things about the corruption and the lust and the, and the, the dirtiness of sex. Why there's all this shame around it. Why we can't talk about it. Why it's kind of freaking you out that the priest is even talking about it in the first place right now. They're innocent of that. Right? And Jesus wants us to be innocent. Innocent, not like a child is ignorant and innocent, but innocent the way Adam and Eve were innocent. They knew each other. They lived the fullness of marriage, even sex. But they didn't use each other. They respected one another. They willed the good of one another. How do we return to that innocence? How do we enjoy this gift of being a man or being a woman in its fullness without shame? First, confession. To not hold back these things, to name them. If we've fallen into some of these sins or that they've been visited upon us, we've let ourselves be used to bring those things and to not be so ashamed that we don't trust in the Lord who loves us and wants to take our shame away from us and to give us freedom in its place. To name those things, bring them to Christ, and to receive our innocence restored in that second baptism that is the sacrament of reconciliation. But then the second step is to refuse to settle for anything less than love. Real love. And how do you know what love looks like? Look at these two. You want to know what it means to be a man? Look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be a woman, look at Mary. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Let it be done according to me, according to your word, says Mary. To be loved by God first. To recognize that our value, our dignity, lies in our status as creatures and children of God. That that love is unconditional. That love respects my freedom to respond to it in love. And so, whatever is courting my attention or courting my love here on this earth, whether a romantic partner or anything else, or anyone else, I will not be used because my Father in Heaven, who loves me first, is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force himself on me, doesn't pressure me to do anything I don't want to do, doesn't respect me simply because of something I can do for him or how attractive he finds me. He loves me for me, who I am. And since I know that, I will refuse to settle for anything less than that. That's God's dream for us, for each and every one of us, married, celibate, man, woman. This is why he gave this gift to Adam and Eve in the first place and why he restores it to us in Christ.